When I was a kid, I used to dream what it would be like to, to live somewhere far away from Hell's Kitchen. Somewhere beautiful. I realized that the city was a part of me, that it was in my blood. I would do anything to make it a better place. If he had an iron suit or a magic hammer, maybe that would explain why you keep getting your asses handed to you. Episode 15 of Defenders TV Podcast, the podcast about the Netflix shows Daredevil, Luke Cage, a.k.a. Jessica Jones, and Iron Fist, all leading to the miniseries Defenders. I'm sure I'm going to miss one of those one week. Uh, I'm one of your Defenders. I'm Derek, Laura by day, Defender by night. I'm Irene, the Unbreakable Cage. I'm Chris, a.k.a. Jessica Jones, but only on the weekend. Hi, I'm John. I am the Iron Fist, also known as... Danny Rand. Hey guys, how are we doing after this episode? Well, this was this was a bit more um, chilled, a bit more relaxed, a bit more um, sedate in, in how it, it went, and so I was quite pleased by, by that. The other one was if you've listened to our epic podcast uh, number 14, uh, which of course you can uh, download at defenderstvpodcast.com forward slash iTunes or any other good podcast catcher and um, you know, that was jam-packed. It was a big episode, um, mm-hmm. the previous episode. This one kind of pairs it back a bit, which is nice, I think. It, it kind of, and it, it focuses very much on intimate moments and between characters, and it's a bit sad and melancholy as well, I mm-hmm. think, this episode. It yeah. was like, it's about um, time to let all the news sink in, and you know, everybody seemed a bit down. Yeah, um, my bottom lip was uh, shaking quite a lot really on this one <laughs> don't fuck. say that <laughs> <laughs> and I guess with that we're going to get on to our, dis- our full discussion this time we're talking about episode 10 of Daredevil Nelson vs Murdoch written by Luke Caltro and directed by Farron Blackburn uh, John would you like to give us your synopsis of this episode I certainly will Daredevil episode 10 best friends for never with the uncovering of the mass vigilante's identity by Foggy Nelson, the friendship between Matt Murdock and Foggy is put under the microscope and dissected. As Foggy feels hollow and utterly used and betrayed, can he trust anything Matt says or how he behaves? Is he even blind? All this disruption in their friendship proves too much for Foggy Nelson as he walks out of Matt's apartment. Events also increasingly begin to burden Ben Urich as the situation with his wife and their health insurance weigh heavily on the choices he has to make. In the end, he must give up his pursuit of his king of diamonds. However, Karen relentlessly tries to keep Ben invested in their cause as she uncovers an unexpected person from Fisk's past. Meanwhile, following Nobu's death, Fisk is concerned with Madame Gao's view on this evolving situation for the crime syndicate. But as he sends Leyland to mediate with Gao, a new and unknown enemy of Fisk surfaces, as a close confidant of Fisk is in mortal danger from a glass of tainted champagne. 
Good stuff, good stuff. Uh, Irene, do you want to kick us off with your first point? I'm going to start with the big thing, which is Foggy and Matt. Yeah. Um, I thought Foggy was very hard on him. Like, I understand he's really hurt, and mm-hmm. obviously he gets that across to him. He feels betrayed, he feels like everything's been a lie uh, since they've known each other. Yeah. But I, I thought, like, he even said himself at one point, if you weren't if you weren't half dead, I'd I'd kick your ass. And uh-huh. you're like, but he is. And you're standing there shouting at him yeah. while he's half dead. And he's in a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. And he's still your friend. Like, he hasn't done anything to you. Apart from life like, or his whole life. <laughs> yeah, I just thought it was a bit harsh. I thought, right. I, I thought he, he was unrelenting in, in his anger. At yeah. Matt. There was no bit where he said, look, I can kind of see your point with this, but... You know, he did, there was no but. There was just a, this is wrong. This is wrong. Like, what yeah. What are you doing? Yeah. And you've been lying to me. You've known I was lying to you. Made some really bizarre arguments like we're lawyers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought that was really funny when he, he said about you listen to her heartbeat without her permission. Uh-huh. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> no. we're, we're lawyers. That isn't supposed to happen. I was like, where's that written? Where's that written down? Yeah, it's like, it's, it's like you've done some, a really intimate act with her that she didn't know about. You're, you're encroaching on her personal space or something is yeah. the way it's coming across. But yeah, yeah I'm sure there's no law against listening to someone else's heartbeat. But <laughs> it's, it's never come up, I'd say. Yeah, yeah I'm, sure, I'm sure they haven't developed a law for that yet. That was a strange line. I kind of... I think I actually have dumb lines of this episode. I mean, I, li- I like this episode, but there were maybe three lines that were said. Where it just made it seemed a bit weird to be, to be honest. And that was definitely one of them. And I was like, okay, yeah. this. No, I can't imagine this is the first law of law. Um, well, the Superhuman Registration Act, mm-hmm. it does make them say, I'm pretty sure that's in there, do not listen to someone's heartbeat. <laughs> I like it. He said, like it. You knew any time I was lying to you that mm-hmm. I was lying. How often did you lie to him? I know, I know, I did like that You're line. You're not a great friend yourself then, are yeah. you? <laughs> I did like that line though, because there is, there is that thing of, you know, with your friends, you, you might, you probably have moments of just little white lies here and there, but knowing that somebody else knows everything that's it's going really on in your mind is a little creepy and embarrassing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It, must be, it must be a strange moment. Um, but yeah, definitely this, these, these scenes obviously form the lion's share of the episode really is, are the scenes between Nelson and Murdoch, so the the episode title is pretty darn good, really. It yeah. is Nelson versus Murdoch, and does kind of feel like a court case where both of them are pleading their side of the argument a bit. Um, Matt is absolutely pleading his innocence to Nelson, hoping that he's not going to, you know, sentence him to no longer be friends anymore and break up the, the friendship. And we don't really know whether Nelson has taken this on board throughout the episode. But as you say, he is very much closed down to the idea of of receiving an answer that's justifiable from Matt. Uh, he's very much setting up the whole uh, the whole argument as you lied to me and lied to me for years. I'm not going to accept anything you're going you're saying to me at all, Matt. Yeah. Um, which is an interesting way of of dealing with this huge issue for the two characters. Yeah, it's kind of it, one of my points actually follows from um, what Irene said because it is pretty unrelenting the whole um, foggy bashing Matt as he's sort of lying there injured. But I think what um, it was also just really bittersweet. It, it, it's the way it links back to their past. And mm-hmm. I mean, not to sound cliched, but to happier times. Like I loved them walking along the path saying, you're the only person that calls me blind Matt Murdock. Everyone else calls me Matt Murdock. There's all these, um, <laughs> you know, we should be studying. It's kind of, it's very normal. It, it's relaxed. It's, 
it's happy, they're laughing. It's even where we then move forward in those flashbacks and you have the whole napkin scene where he writes, you know, um, Nelson and Murdoch, attorneys at law, on the napkin and they're having a drink. And it's like this kind of uh, solidarity of the two of them um, going to set up this practice that does look out for the little guy, isn't... Mm -hmm. um, the, the big law firm that it is just with corporate clients pursuing the little man that, you know, they want to do something different. And all that for me was just tinged with um, sort of this bittersweet aspect, a sadness to it, because it contrasted so much with the the pain of being lied to for so long for Foggy. And almost then, as you say, that law type of dialogue between the two of them of Matt Murdock having to defend himself um, to the person who he has called his friend and Foggy having to um, challenge him as to has anything been real to the person who only the other day was his friend. So it made yeah. all the flashbacks. It added a tinge of sadness to them. Um, you know, a lot, lot of tissues needed here, yeah. I think. You see, at the end where Matt gets... Mac gets upset first. Yeah. And usually Foggy you would have thought would have been the softer one. Matt didn't get upset when Elena died, but Foggy and Karen, Foggy was crying. Yeah. Like, not just upset, he was crying. and But he didn't, actually, he's got a very hard face when they show Matt getting upset and then it goes back to Foggy and he's, he's just, his face is just set. Yeah. He's just, no, there is no, and he just leaves. Yeah. And he, Matt can't follow him. Like, he can't run after him. Mm-hmm. Probably it's can't so walk at the very moment. Hard, yeah. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty badly in 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 a, in a pretty bad way, really. As, as poor old Matt. Um, yeah, I know what you mean. There is, there's definitely the, uh, there's definitely a lot more emotion here with uh, with Matt, and it is quite difficult for as as we said, it's it's a, a very emotional episode. It's quite difficult to watch Matt break down as he loses his friend. But the response from Foggy is is very much all I wanted from you was to be a friend. That's all I wanted, uh, and you've now told me that basically every part of our relationship was a lie from when we were when we were in college when you introduced me as the blind guy who couldn't see and had me had me drag you around everywhere and carry you around to everywhere we were going so yeah i kind of i don't know i'm kind of on the side of nelson on this one um you know i know it's i know it's a superhero show and i know there's always in the comic books there has to be a uh persona where he doesn't tell any of his friends or family about it but i don't think matt explained away well enough why he was doing that to protect the people around him, which is the usual excuse that's given, that you don't want anybody to know because if people find out, then they're they're going to be victimized by your enemies. Gave no explanation like that. He just kind of said, well, really didn't come up in conversation over the last five years, and I didn't really get an opportunity to tell you I'm sorry, basically, and you would have done Selfish. the same if you were wearing a mask. Never tell somebody else what they're going to say to you <laughs> or else you're going to get that kind of reaction as Foggy gave in this episode, I thought. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Chris, do you want to give us your first point? Sure. Um, I'm going to bring up perhaps the the point we've all been waiting for. Um, <laughs> the love interest. Mm -hmm. The beautiful Jennifer Garner. I hope not. No, um, no of course, in this uh, episode, in the flashback scene when Foggy and Matt are walking down uh, through the college campus, Foggy uh, reminisces about... So what about that smoking hot Greek girl mm -hmm. that you followed into Spanish class? Mm -hmm. This is has to be a direct reference to the lovely Electra, mm -hmm. who is perhaps the 
one of the most pivotal characters in the Daredevil lore uh, series in the comic books. And, and please, any of our listeners, do not take, if you've never read many of the comic books and you're just going by the 2003 film, um, that is an okay no, okay, it's not. It, it's, it's a pretty, it, it's an okay representation. But uh, Elektra is pivotal to Matt, mm-hmm. uh, and especially his growth as the. So I'm expecting now that was the we'll get a the Greek girl from college comes back in season two, mm-hmm. and that's where we're going to get a full introduction. Um, she also was trained by Stick. Mm-hmm. Um, she's fought for the hand. She's a mercenary. She fights for the good guys and the bad guys, and double crosses the bad guys and double crosses the good guy. Amazing character, yeah. and this was a great piece for me. It was nice just like, yay! Yeah, nice little reference to uh, Electra Nachos. There's Nachos, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Nachos. yeah not, not, nachos, not Nachos, like yeah. I used to call her. No, it was Doritos, remember? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Pringles on a Wednesday. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good, good catch there, definitely. And, and uh, I think we we'd actually said a couple of times after. Uh, after episodes before that it's weird they don't have any references to Electra so it's nice to see a reference veiled though it is that this could be a that this could be Electra. Yeah, I I think I think obviously Stephen Denight and the other the, the other writers were very cautious mm-hmm. um about how not to be too associated with the original film. Mm. Um I think that was just from both that the the films were had pluses and minuses in both pros and cons in both categories. Mm-hmm. Uh, the secondary, the spin-off, the Electra film, mm. stunk, unfortunately, but it had some good scenes. Um, I don't remember any good scenes. Actually, uh, if you I... squint and just kind of turn your head to the side yeah, <laughs> and then yawn, it's like that's the good scene. <laughs> it's like lime flavored nachos. It didn't work. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and, on, and on that weird taste sensation. So Derek, what's your first point? Um, Madame Gao and, uh, and Fisk's meeting. Um, I wanted to just talk just a little little element in there. Uh, it was actually just about her story to to Fisk, which I just thought was a really interesting uh, jab at who Fisk is and and how he's being perceived by Madame Gao. Essentially, the story of the snake and the elephant in the, in the village. Snake opens its uh, opens its mouth too wide, trying to take down an elephant, and is found dead with its mouth wide open. Um, and I like that Fisk's response to this is, am I the snake or elephant in that story? Which am I? Am I the one that you're going to try to take down? Or am I the one that's trying to take on too much of uh, of New York? Um, Gao is a fascinating character. I love her on screen in every episode she's been in so far. This one is another wonderful, threatening uh, threatening of Fisk from the small old woman uh, who isn't taking out any weapons, isn't isn't attacking him with her vast army of people. She is just simply threatening and dangerous not even shouting not even raising her voice absolutely Um, yeah I thought it was a really really good scene old women rock definitely (laughs) that was also one of my points as well and like the whole scene the rooftop garden you know it's very zen almost Mm. but just with all the uh, skyscrapers around was like so cool looking so awesome and then you had this really measured dialogue yeah the snake and the elephant story this idea that um, like she gives a, a little bit of um, history as well. When, the, when you came to me as a younger man, you had this singular vision and mm-hmm. you've now become conflicted. Um, you know, you, you can't be both light and shadow, saviour and oppressor. Um, you have to make a choice here. That was really 
cool for me. I, I thought, again, just this beat down of, of Wilson just through tales and yeah. stories. And it, it was really great to see. I, I thought it was, um, really good seeing this. Loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No. And I have to say, Vincent D'Onofrio's Mandarin. My God. Seems phenomenal. It, it seems phenomenal. <laughs> I, I don't know if he actually learned Mandarin or uh-huh. he can speak Mandarin, but the inflections, it doesn't look like, he, or he doesn't portray it that he was just an actor who learned sounds. Right. He right. sounds like he actually, when you look at it, it sounds like he does know what he's saying. Mm-hmm. I think that's a testament. Um, actually, a really nice Marvel Easter egg, that rooftop, mm-hmm. Spider-Man 1, Sam Raimi. Yeah, when uh, Peter Parker say, as Spider Man saves Mary Jane mm-hmm. and flies her and drops her into that garden. Oh right, very. That's why it looks familiar. Very it's been in loads of other films. Yeah, it's obviously yeah. quite well known for yeah. filming, but that was just a bit. Oh, it's a Marvel crossover kind nice. of thing. <laughs> nice one, nice one. Yeah, we were pretty close to there when we were in New York last time. Hopefully, when we get back to New York, we'll go and uh, visit all the locations where. Both Daredevil and Gotham were shot. Just so. not Hell's Kitchen. Maybe uh, Hell's Kitchen is actually a lovely area of New York. Uh, Lincoln yeah. is the uh, is the area. It's a lovely area in New York, actually. Yeah. Um, one of the, I think it's actually some of the uh, highest rents are in uh, are in that area of New York now because it has it has been redeveloped quite well, but uh, but so not this, in this year. This was just good. succeeded then. This may have succeeded. Sugar, I've just given away the end of the first season of, of Daredevil. Um, no, essentially what, what Marvel have done with the show, I think we actually may have mentioned this on our first episode, but what Marvel have actually done is said that the Battle of New York has destroyed a lot of the Hell's Kitchen area and kind of pushed it back to tenements and pushed it back to a really dest- destroyed place. And that's why it's kind of mirroring, mirroring what... Hell's Kitchen would have been like in the 70s because mm-hmm. the attack on New York has destroyed some of the areas, basically. So uh, it's a good good choice by uh, by Marvel there. Irene, do you want to give us your next point? When Karen calls when Foggy is still talking to Matt mm-hmm. and he when Foggy told her that Matt had been in an accident. Yeah. <laughs> that was my... If, if if any moment did it, that was my bottom lip quivering moment. Yeah. He, he still didn't give him away. That was the only bit I went, okay, maybe he's not all bad then because he, yeah, he, he didn't give it away. And, but then on the other side, I was going, Jesus, poor Karen, like yeah. you ring up looking for the two guys you work with, they haven't turned up and you're told one of them was in an accident mm-hmm. and, and don't come over. And hilariously, she said, was Matt driving? <laughs> no, no, he was driving. Dumb line number two. <laughs> I, I thought that was a funny line. I must yeah, say. Yeah, I don't know. I took it. I know you how you mean. You could take it for me, like I know she had. If she she did show him a newspaper last week to get his his opinion of what was on the front page, um, but I liked the little the little kind of reaction seemed seemed quite well placed. I think she's she's probably just taken aback by the fact that she's being told over the phone that her best friend or one of her best friends has just been in a car accident that she didn't know about. Yeah. And kind of went, well, okay, well, he's blind. If he's driving the car, <laughs> I can the see why wonder. he was in an accident. You know? But I thought the it was nice. Scent of a woman, or scent of a daredevil. There you go, scent <laughs> of a daredevil. Yeah. But basically, Irene, what you're saying and what you want to say to Foggy is, how many fingers am I holding up <laughs> in this episode? <laughs> and I love that opening as well. Just the, are you even blind? I mean, it's such a great question straight off the bat that you would ask after sort of, uncovering your blind friend who can do all this kick-ass stuff. It was brilliant. I yeah. loved it. <laughs> no, really good. And Chris, do you want to give us your next point? Yeah, uh, I'm going to just do... Uh, I think we touched on it briefly before. and um, There's the scene with um, Ben Urich and his editor mm-hmm. where he's being offered a new 
associate editor, assistant editor position. Yeah. Um, straight away, what caught my eye again was the um, clippings mm-hmm. on the back. So we had known um, from previous kind of interpretations or what we gleamed that Ben had made his mark doing these kind of big scan- the scandal corruption pieces. Yeah. And then the um, Battle of New York piece got him a huge byline. Um, obviously, that's referring to the Avengers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there was Terror in Harlem. Again, that was on the wall. I'm assuming that's... We see a photo of the Hulk, I think, and yep. the Abomination. So, Incredible Hulk. That's right, yeah, yeah. Um, but there was one more. Uh-huh. Interesting. Uh, and now I want to see what... I'm looking for feedback from my listeners, right? Uh-huh. Because I, I have a theory, but I, I just want to see. It's uh, caught cheating. Okay. Hmm. What playboy philanthropist could end up on page one uh-huh. uh, with caught cheating? Interesting, interesting. So, is that uh, Tony Stark? Is it Tony Stark in his love life back in original days? From Did Ben do a bit of glossy mag coverage <laughs> <laughs> around Tony Stark and from the original, the very first Iron Man before he became Iron Man? Maybe, maybe. Um, but I'd love to see what us. other people think. Yeah, okay. uh, who, who was caught? Who was caught cheating? That's an, that's an interesting question, definitely. Derek, what's your next point? Uh, it's one for me, really, that stood out in this show. We've talked about the realism of the show quite a lot, obviously, and what they're and what they're doing. But one that really stood out to me in this episode was um, finally we have someone talking about their job quite realistically in this episode with Ben Oric. Um I've seen so many TV shows over the years where you know people work through the night, not sleep, um, because their jobs are the most important things around them. Benerick's character here is is finally saying, you know what, sometimes things aren't as important as your job. He's supposed to be the reporter character in this TV show, which means this is supposed to be the most important thing for him. In this episode, it's showing that essentially his wife's dying. That's much more important to him than the central story arc of this TV show that he's a part of. And I thought it was nice because, because it's nice to see a, car- a well-developed character with real things going on in their life around them. Um, the storyline itself with Ben's wife is a very sad story. His wife is obviously uh, obviously got dementia of some sort, um, or Alzheimer's of, of some sort potentially. Um, a beautiful scene between the two of them in the in uh, in the hospital where she wakes up and they have a proper conversation and everything seems fine. She seems hello, lucid. Hello, handsome. Hello, uh, gorgeous. Hello, gorgeous. Yeah, lovely scene between the two of them, and then it starts over again uh, when the Alzheimer's kicks in. Um, tough scene to watch. I, th- really I thought. Really horrible. Yeah. That look passed across her face. And you're going, God, she, she's gone. Mid, like, she's, yeah, mid yeah. kiss as well. Yeah. That was that was the bit that got me. If it was like end Just of kiss talking. and it, then yeah. it reset. would have been reset. But yeah. it was the mid kiss, and you could see it. They they did it. Re- the shot was beautiful. Mm-hmm. It was slightly skew, but you saw her eyes kind of what the what some who's doing what to me. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's... It's yeah. heartbreaking. It was so touching, like, just their whole interaction and then just tragic at that moment where it's just really sad. Mm-hmm. It's definitely, yeah. And just, it's uh, just a great little scene. And because that scene was played so well and because Benerick's character is the character he is, I like that he's taken this on board and said and brought the box of uh, the box of his investigation to Karen and said, look, this is for you to investigate now. I'm out. I'm, I'm, I can't deal with this and the issues with my wife anymore yeah like his line is i know how important it is when he was speaking to karen but it's not the most important to me and a really good line and and actually when you kind of thought that karen was trying to persuade him otherwise i was kind of slightly 
I, I felt a bit antagonized by Karen just mm-hmm. continually pursuing it because he has made this quite important and personal decision, yeah. very emotional to, you know, maybe take on the editorship because it it provides for more money to be able to uh, put his wife into a hospice, a normal um, real life kind of consideration that people would do. And just for that moment, I, mean, I know it, it's to drive the story. And I mean, you know, it's not that it's colored anything towards Karen's characters as that stage, but it, it does, the writing does the job to really kind of make you go, no, Karen, just let him be kind yeah. of thing. If yeah. we don't push your point, like we understand why it's important. It's the which kind is, of thing you decide yeah. lightly. So. Like, but it's great writing to actually push those triggers on the basis of everything that's gone before. And I, I love that aspect to it as well. Yeah. I, I wonder, I know this is speculation, but I wonder, are they, because we now know Spider-Man, this, the Spider-Man deal would have been done mid, just towards end of, end of filming mm. of this mm. um, are they potentially t- pulling Urk out are they winding down his story or mm. his part of it to either put him into a Spider-Man situation or worse because he's that crossover maybe just try and get rid of him right um, like just because he is that he he's too connected to both universes so could it be that they're winding, just trying to wind down, and we may get a cameo in season two, <laughs> maybe kind of thing? Maybe. I'm not sure. I'm 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 really not sure. I I uh, it, it's difficult to watch the show and realize that the whole thing was dropped in one day. Now we're almost a, we're almost a month on from when it was released. Now and it's difficult to think of it in that way that it was all dropped in one day. It, time hasn't passed for the show like it has, like it does for most shows that are on TV. Yeah. So realistically, the deal with Marvel and and Sony was only probably done three months before the show was released. Looking at some of the episodes that we've seen with the, the makeup effects, the fighting, the, the filming, the editing that had to be done, I presume this was, this show was actually fully in the can before the deal was actually done. With Sony, I think it was done probably about November, December last year, um, which is which is interesting that, that they may have made that decision to pull them back knowing something was coming up, uh, was coming up there. But Okay, um, well then... Based on what we know of the writers now mm-hmm. and how much they like violence, tugging on our heartstrings, yeah. are they building Eric up in our minds mm-hmm. and our love of him only to tear him to down? To rip him away. I know. I know. I don't want to even think about that. Yeah, no. But it's <laughs> uh, the I thing. Do. They, they seem yeah. to do that. They, they it, It's... This seems to be the way that they're building up all these characters, and we don't know. They could go Game of Thrones style and just mm-hmm. start like axing people left, right, and center. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's interesting, and I just, I, I, having been hugely complimentary of what they did with Ben in this episode, I get a sneaking suspicion that Karen's ploy to bring him to meet Mrs. Fisk, I guess we can call her now, um, will actually convince Ben to go back and start investigating again. And I've been hugely complimentary with how they've dealt with. Ben's story in this episode and I'm not so complimentary about what Karen did to bring him to meet Mrs. Fisk and reignite the interest in the story because that wasn't the issue he was not not interested in the story no. he was just saying there's more important things in my life so I'm thinking probably next episode we'll have Ben back to investigating the story for some reason um, but let's see I'll, see. I'll reserve my actual yeah. judgment on that piece until I see it obviously but on that note John, do you want to give us your next point? Yeah, my next point is, she's alive! She's alive! (laughs) (laughs) Wilson Fisk's mom's alive. Yeah. And uh, had three husbands after her 
rotter of a first husband. And um, then a gay husband. Then a gay husband. <laughs> and then a really nice one. And then a really nice one, yeah. yeah. And this is mm-hmm. this is really good. This is a really nice little sort of surprise, a jack in the box within the story that um she's she's there and she's in a sense gonna spill the beans mm-hmm. um, about her lovely Wilson. It wasn't his fault and begins to just draw out that that story that we saw in Shadows in the Glass and really sort of pulls and starts to bring out all those elements that we saw in Shadows in the Glass, the, the you know, the Wilson Fisk origin with the young uh, Wilson... Um, Wilson? Sorry. Um, with the young Wilson <laughs> um, killing his dad and all that potentially about to explode. And I love how that gets brought out in this intimate setting of a bedroom um, in in a hospice, and mm-hmm. then it sort of opens out to this grand space where Wilson Fisk is about to sort of speak to a load of donors, I think, and 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 guests at some at this function that yeah. he's set up. I, I love that contrast of where he is now and where his mum is um, at the moment, who we all thought had died, wasn't it? I think earlier on in the episode they say that she had died a year after um, her husband had gone missing and so on. So it was a, a good. It was a good reveal, I thought, and it really kind of explodes the the can, I think, really. Mm-hmm. That's really weird. And just thinking about that, a year after, so that would have put Fisk as what? 13? 14? Mm, about that, yeah. yeah. So how did he hide his mother's... So, yeah, that's just okay. possibly a potential kind of plot hole. In let's that, see. Yeah, let's see what let's happens. See, let's see because we're probably we're probably going to hear more of this story um, as sure. we go yeah, on. Okay, what we what we have a bit of knowledge of from the comic books is the connection with Rigoletto, one of the yeah. uh, one of the crime bosses in Hell's Kitchen. There's possibly been some cover up that's been done here. Uh, most of the neighborhood didn't seem to like the Fisk family uh, very much because of his father. When he went missing, they assumed the Rig- that Rigoletto had killed the father. There could be another connection there that hid. Uh, his mother's past from uh, from people outside of Hell's Kitchen, perhaps something like that. Um, but yeah, but Karen traced it down, so obviously the the uh, the hiding work that was done wasn't that great. No. Uh, I guess because she's not she's no Ben. Uh, actually, <laughs> actually, apparently she's better than Ben. Uh-huh. Yeah, mm, interesting. Yeah, um, a f- a really good scene. Um, really interesting. I was totally thrown off uh, off balance on this. I, I thought um, Karen was doing something really nice. I thought there was going to be some really nice point here for Karen, where she was going to reveal to Ben that actually she was the heir to a huge fortune, and she was going to pay for his wife to come and stay in this amazing place. This is why she was bringing him here. Um, Parents ran it or something. Something or... like that. Or that it was her mother that was staying there. And this is how, how nice life in a hospice can be if you get into the right one. I thought she was doing a, a nice bit of service for, for Ben. But as I said, unfortunately, the character is, uh, isn't, that isn't on her mind. What she yeah. wants to do is convince Ben to keep working with her and keep investigating in, uh, into this uh, Wilson Fisk so to it, save the city of, of Hell's Kitchen. That was pretty despicable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was because he made the heartfelt explanation to her yeah. that that it's not the most important thing in my mind right now. If she took that in any way lightly, or she took took it that his decision was made any way lightly, she's it's really insensitive. Yeah, like it's not all about you, love. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, I, it is. It really, yeah. it actually puts her in a really manipulative, uncaring kind of light. I think because he he even goes. 
you know, oh, we've gone into the wrong room. Sorry about this. And, she and then she's, she's yeah, she exactly. keeps keeping it, and it, it's yeah. so premeditated mm-hmm. yeah. that she didn't need to actually drag him out to that place, and because she couldn't have known that Wilson Fisk's mum was going to say those things unless she knew them already to prompt her in the questioning. So they didn't need to drive out there. So it was all a false hope, and in it to an extent and he now realizes that so it'd be interesting to see his reaction yeah and um, to her because i think any normal person would probably just tell you where off. to go yeah yeah um, and it'll be interesting what happens in the next episode but it really puts her in a as i said it's, very bad light. she's ideological now at this stage and mm. she nothing else matters um, fanatical almost yeah yeah about um other people's well-being and their emotions. It, it's no longer about anything other than her obsession and and, and her drive to um, bring down Fisk for something that's still... This is maybe the first bit of real evidence that, yeah. they, that, that she had. Yeah. She could have told him in the office. Yeah. But it's, even it, on the drive out, all the stuff she's saying to him about... You know, you just have to swim swim through the shit and hope you don't swallow too much. Like, mm-hmm. you're going... Well, if you're really that jaded, then how are you so naive and blinkered right. about going uh, going after this really powerful man? Yeah. He's just a rich bad guy. But if, if you're really... You're not that jaded. Like, what... And then bringing Ben out there... I don't know. I just thought it's actually really cold when you yeah. think about it. Like, he's... You're bringing him away from his wife that he's just decided to spend time with. And, absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Bad. I think in any You're other show, girl. in any other show, it would it would actually work if it wasn't put in these circumstances. Again, if he hadn't said specifically, I understand why this is so important to you. I understand why it's so important to the city, but right now, this is not what I should be For focusing me. on. Yeah, I, I think that's Real a real. I think that's allowed. I think people are allowed to say that occasionally. Mm, all right, you guys are you guys. You guys can continue fighting. I'll even give you everything I've done already, so you're not you're not falling behind because I'm not involved anymore. But for her to do what she did, I thought was cold. Yeah, definitely. I think we, and we spoke about it in some of the earlier episodes of of, of the podcast about earlier episodes. Mm. They are very much. She was the victim at the beginning, mm-hmm. and the more we're getting introduced to her, the more we see that she is self-destructive, that she does not care about other people. She, she, they are setting her up for that, uh, that you do not like her. Mm-hmm. And it's becoming more and more evident. So she's self-deluded. It's centering around her. Yeah. It's... She's taken totally. She yeah. she is literally now, like she is going to destroy lives, based on her own passion to take down the kingpin, and she doesn't have the same level of uh, charisma as uh, Ben or the 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 legal smarts as the other people. She as doesn't foggy. have the skills or the knowledge she thinks she does either. Yeah. It's like I was fine with her being self-destructive because I don't like her. But don't start hurting other people now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She's like, the evil within. She's actually this kind of rotten core that's beginning to infect out into yeah. the sort of the other members of, I said, you know, uh, the group. And um, just because Matt and Foggy forgave you for being sweet and a bit thick doesn't mean everybody else has to. <laughs> do you? Yeah. Well, I do. I do like Ben's description of it. Essentially, it's basically I like your tenacity. It reminds me of me when I was younger. I like that you get things done. But I, I, what I, what you need to learn is that 
sometimes you have to step away and sometimes you don't force things. You need to learn how not to force things with people, essentially. She's just done it to him, though. Yeah. So she clearly hasn't learned that lesson. On that point, Chris, do you want to give us your next point? Um, yeah, I'm going to bring up the fundraising scene. Okay, yep. Yes, yep. so that, that, that was, well, I want to bring it up for a number of reasons, mm-hmm. but I'll get quickly to the point. What's going on? Yeah. Um, well, A, yes, what's going on? Mm-hmm. B, again, we see Fisk as this political powerhouse. He's more and more becoming to learn how to control the crowd. He He's talking to senators. Mm-hmm. He's doing the whole elbow shake hands. Yes. <laughs> he is, like, literally, you just needed the baby, as we said before, the baby with the camera, and he picks the baby, kisses it, and hands it back to the mother. Yeah. It was yeah. like he's becoming this really well-oiled machine. Um, what I liked is that we're shown, we're introduced to Senator uh, Sherry, um, who is again from the comic books? Right. He's um, actually from uh, Frank Miller's Daredevil. Right. Surprise, surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's um, they 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 refer to him as the simpering slave. Right. Um, he's corrupt, confidential. Daredevil takes him down uh, as they do. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was a nice kind of again nod back to Frank Miller's. Mm-hmm. Um, Owsley has a really fun mention of a Van Lund. Who is obsessed with astrolo- astrology? Right. This is a hugely obscure reference. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Um, yeah. To um, a ridiculous supervillain called <laughs> Taurus. Okay. Who gets his power from astrology? Right. It's oh, it's he, he's kind of like the owl. Right. He's just like he's a throwback from the sixties, yeah. uh, the early sixties, seventies, and you're like, okay, we can just yeah, that that was a joke and a nod. I, I don't understand why. <laughs> I wonder was he a member of the Scorpio gang? Uh, as well, I wonder about that. But anyway. yeah. Surely, <laughs> surely he must have Taurus, I'm sure. But the best one that I loved was the uh, throwaway remark by Owsley, which is actually a nod to the Defenders comic book, right. which he talks about. Uh, make sure Richmond's on the guest list. He won't come, but he'll get uh, pissy if he isn't invited. Right. This refers to Kyle Richmond, okay, who is Nighthawk in the comic books, right. For our listeners who aren't aware of the, some of the original Defenders lineup, mm-hmm. uh, Nighthawk and the Defenders were sometimes set up as this alternative to the Justice League right. by Marvel. Nighthawk is Batman, Marvel's version of Batman. He's a billionaire playboy. Um, originally, he was a billionaire playboy. He um, got annoyed. His He had bad luck right. in his boarding school and stuff. So he ended up becoming a vigilante for the hell of it. Right. He has this terrible costume in black with red hood, mm-hmm. with actual peak, looks like a beak. Right. Um, he has... Uh, like Hawkeye. Yeah. <laughs> and he has um, wings. <laughs> he actually has wings and a jet... Par- a jet- um, a jetpack that right. flies him around. His worst power, which he gets later, um, he gets slightly stronger from dusk till dawn. <laughs> um, so it was just a nice throwback to obviously like he's in the Defenders. Mm-hmm. They could throw in a reference because it was a gala dinner and they went, okay, let's make it nice. Right. Um, but yeah, that was, it was really before me. That was nice. I don't think we're ever going to see him on screen. Right. If we do, it'll be season four. Right. Um, We've run out of characters. Yeah. Season <laughs> Let's four. go put him in. Um, <laughs> like Arrow season three. I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> um, but no, it's, it's good. And uh, I think the, the key point to this was the ending. Yes. The choking. Absolutely. The, the foaming, the arsenic 
perhaps? Possibly, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm really intrigued by this one. Definitely. Who did it? Is this uh, Gao? Is, is, is Gao enacting her threat? Is, uh, yeah, that was absolutely the point that I'd written down about this episode. Um, is Gao enacting the threat that she laid out for Wilson? He has to make a choice here. Either be a leader or, yeah, either okay. either be a leader or or take care of your, your girl, essentially. And now his girl is lying on the floor choking and... Uh, yeah. And he either has to show his leadership skills or take her to hospital, basically. So what's going to happen here? Yeah, and even, even just the link to uh, to Leyland Owsley as well, who he comes in and says, it's sorted. But then it was how he behaves where he obviously hasn't drank any of the champagne mm-hmm. and drops it as well, as though he is aware of what's going on slightly. Um, I'm not entirely sure whether I maybe saw that correctly, but for me... It, it hinted that maybe he is um, involved in it to some extent because he has increasingly challenged um, Fisk sort of at uh, at Potter's um, tailors. You know, he he really starts to to challenge Fisk in terms of you're not getting this sorted. You know, things are unraveling, and it happened again in. Um, I think it must have been Fisk's apartment where Owsley is there. And I have to say, I was half expecting Fisk to break his neck or push him out the window or, or hit him or punch him or or, ki- or just kill him um, in that, that scene. And Fisk asks him to go and talk to Madame Gow to try and um, you know, k- smooth things over. There's mm-hmm. obviously a, a slight fracturing going on. We've had it with the Russians and now... Um, with Nobu as well, and uh, Owsley has just been more and more antagonistic towards Fisk, mm-hmm. and I wonder whether we don't know because it was off screen. But he's gone back to Madame Gao to say, "Look, I've been asked to do this. I'm getting more and more like concerned about how he's behaving." We've seen her in the roof garden saying exactly the same yeah. thing, and previously in his apartment saying, "Get your house in order," and maybe this is now where she's dealing with Fisk's emotional side because, again, she draws it out. Again, they've said the Russians were emotional, um, that Matt Murdock is emotional, and that's the weakness. And Gao is saying that he's becoming emotional as well. Mm -hmm. Um, He has Vanessa. Or this crime syndicate sees emotion and that caring for a loved one as... A pure and simple weakness that needs to be removed. Yeah. And maybe that it is Madame Gao with another kind of drug that's been laced through the uh, the champagne. Yeah. And a, a really interesting point that you bring up is Owsley involved because he does say, does anybody else need to drink as much as I do? And then he doesn't drink, drink any of the drink. So, yeah. yeah Vanessa it's... says she does. And then he's three big gulps. Like, yeah. I was like, oh, God. Like, because yeah. her glass is half empty. Mm-hmm. And the one he drops, as you said, he's. Johnny drops it's nearly full. Yeah, yeah. Which means I took to mean he hadn't touched it either. Yeah, it's not like he took it, but she took loads and now she's sick. Exactly. It looked like he hadn't touched it. It looks like he set them up. But so. he was talking for that whole scene. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that's the bit I'm like, did did he just get away with it because he's a bit of a loudmouth and likes the sound of his own voice? He's just lucky. Yeah. 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 And part of me was thinking, did he just do that so that suspicion? doesn't fall on him, i.e. that he hasn't done anything, but because he hasn't drank anything, maybe he might be accused of something yeah. that he's not done, maybe something like that. One thing for me, though, is 
I do hope that Vanessa doesn't die from whatever it is mm -hmm. and that's causing the foaming. I really like her as a character, and it'd be a shame to to um, lose that counterpoint to Fisk. Actually, I do like their relationship. I like how it's Definitely. kind of it's very business like to an extent, but I like it makes sense for Fisk's uh, character, and she's happy enough with that arrangement. So I hope I hope she doesn't die. But um, he's got enough money, so I'm sure Let's she'll see. go to a top hospital. Or we can just, he'll find Vanessa 2.0. <laughs> I, I was actually thought the first, they really looked like a couple uh, uh, in the last episode at the at the gallery. Mm -hmm. They looked like they were really, they were really together and like happy for people to know they're together. And she's yeah. standing beside him in the press shoot, which is how Matt knows to go to the gallery in the first place. Mm -hmm. And and now she, if she's gone, I, well... It'll definitely be Fisk Smash time if she's Absolutely. dead. Fisk Smash. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah, one point that, that stood out to me at the gallery uh, was that we're, we see essentially the uh, the group of villains or the, the, the what you would normally see as the group of bad guys standing together for the first time. So you see Elsley, you see Vanessa, Fisk and Wesley all standing together for the first time. Again, any other superhero show that you see that there would there would be lots of laughter uh, of the of the evil laugh, <laughs> maniacal <laughs> laugh variety. Wait, let us tell us our secret plan to yeah. the world. And it's such a testament to the show that now after ten episodes, essentially, that you're looking at these guys as just another another group that's in Hell's Kitchen. You don't look at them as maniacal bad guys. You look at them as you know the counterpoint to Matt Murdock, um, and yeah. they're just interested to spend time with them and interested to watch what's going on with their with their group rather than going, oh, God, that's the guy that murdered that person and did that person. They just seem like a normal group of people that are trying to do something for the city. Not that I'm empathising yet with Fitz and Fisk. <laughs> I did actually wonder, though, the, the camera pans onto two groups of people um, as just after Wilson is talking, mm -hmm. and I'm wondering, because it, it, it almost pans... Slightly too long. It focuses on two group. Okay. Uh, there's um, I can I can remember who. Uh, but I don't know. We haven't introduced them. We haven't seen them before. Right. But one or two of them look kind of like comic book characters. Right. So I'm. I I think probably not. But I would like to know that there may be more. Right. So these are Fisk's next army right but this is the political side of his army mm -hmm. so like we're going to get some of the the evil lawyers right the evil councilmen um imagine fisk for president yeah like this is the way the way it looks like it's going mm -hmm. absolutely he does get the uh get the question as to whether he would run for senate and future and his answer i'll leave that to you there you go good political answer there is Derek, it Nick? what's one of your next points i'm gonna have to steal rocks on oil uh, from Chris, I know. I know Chris <laughs> likes to likes to get all our uh, all our Easter eggs in here, but uh, Roxanne Oil is a really important uh, um, company throughout the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I think, if I'm right, every single one of the eleven movies that have formed uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe of films, plus Agents of Shield and probably Agent Carter, which we haven't seen over here yet, um, they have had at least one reference to Roxanne Oil throughout their throughout their uh, running time they've always had some there's definitely iron man 3 had quite significant reference and overtones to to roxon oil and in this in this episode roxon oil are the oil company that uh, that um the worker who's clearly very sick and has gotten uh, has gotten uh, i guess some form of cancer or some some serious medical problems uh, they're the ones that um he's taken the court case against um 
for working on the processing plant. Uh, it's basically the law firm that Matt and um, and Foggy are working for just after they come out of college. Landman so, Zach. Yeah, and it essentially is what leads Matt and uh, and Foggy to leave that type of uh, that type of lawyering, I guess, and move on to, move in to do their own. Uh, to move in and do their own practice because they're seeing how evil law can be used or how law can be used in a very evil way to uh, to shut out the little guy from uh, from having the opportunity to uh, to uh, live, live their life out. Uh, yeah. yeah, and I think it's, it is fit. It was very fitting that, mm-hmm. that this was it was rocks and industries. Mm-hmm. By the way, not oil. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no, it's fitting. Rocks on are the. The evil corporation of the Marvel Universe. That's mm-hmm. who they are. Back from the 40s in probably Agent Carter, but definitely in Captain America, mm-hmm. um, all the way up to present day MCU. Um, they are that evil, faceless corporation. And it was fitting that they're the ones when the, the uh, Foggy and Murdoch are in there, that this is the evil corporation that t- turns them and makes them go, who oh, no, yeah. uh, we can't do this. This is not what we want to do anymore. And it was quite interesting that this was a toxic chemical lawsuit. Mm-hmm. So obviously, question mark that will hang in the air forever. Was Roxon evil chemicals, the chemicals that uh, poor Matt was drenched in in the very uh, first episode? Possibly being carried in Rand International's truck. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Possibly. Yeah. Um, John, do you want to give us your next point? Yeah, I, it's a small point. I mean, basically, I love the fact that Foggy calls out Matt's contradiction. Mm. It's you know, the last episode. Matt is wrestling with his own kind of contradictions as well um, with with the priest. But this time, Foggy calls this out that he's asking hit, um, himself and Karen to use the law in pursuit of Wilson Fisk. Yet all the time, he is um, on the street not using the law. Yep. Matt does say that there are some things that the, the law can't help with, but Foggy still calls him out saying, you're judge, jury, and now executioner. I almost said uh, judge, judy, and executioner <laughs> from Hot Fuzz. <laughs> uh, it's like Peg and Frost movie. Um, but I, I love that he calls out that contradiction of, of Matt because it, it seems as though Matt's wrestling with that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was really good in, in these that this kind of courtroom drama. He's he's you know he's cut through the argument that that Matt is saying and said you're just taking it upon yourself to to be all these things, and um, and there is no transparency to it, and there's no one to hold you to account. Um, and it's a really good um, moment, I think, yeah. in that. In that kind of courtroom drama scene, yeah, yeah, definitely. Just uh, again, really good to see the 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 argument between these two characters and see Foggy bring up things that we've said about Matt a couple of times now. That stop telling them that they can't uh, that they can't fight against this, but he's gone out and fighting at night himself. Yeah. Uh, Irene, do you want to give us your final point? Um, I was just going to say, do we do we think the partnership is dead? We see Foggy throwing the well, dropping the sign into the bin at the end, uh-huh. and leaving the office and he's already walked out on Matt so it's like he maybe went to the office to collect something mm-hmm. so it's final final he's gone he's out yeah I know it's, it does seem like um, it seems like one of those comic book issue covers this this moment in uh, in this episode seems like the cover of an issue of the comic which is 
you're going to have to look for more. You're going to have to find out more by opening up. And it is where their partnership breaks apart is what it seems like. I'm sure it's a reference. Someone's going to have to know that or I'm going to have to Google it. Um, but but, uh, but yeah, it, it does seem like their partnership could be over now. Uh, Foggy was unrelenting in his, in his uh, accusations against Matt and Matt was unrelenting, unrelenting in his apology. I did, sorry, I didn't tell you. But not sorry for what I'm doing. Not sorry for what I'm doing. Because trying to get him to understand he can't. He can't do anything else other than what he's doing. Exactly. But exactly. Foggy isn't. No, he he still seems very angry. Actually, when he, even in the office, he's just still that stony set on his face. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I I think this is going to be. I think it's the end of the partnership for now. I think within two episodes, something will have happened. Yeah. That Foggy comes around again. And oh, they can't not. They can't yeah. break them apart forever. Well, not for, it could be season two <laughs> before they get back. Yeah. But I think this is the. That the I think this would be the this is the pivotal coming up to the pivotal moment. So this pivot breaks them, mm-hmm. then something happens that causes Foggy to go. Okay, Matt, maybe there is a way for both the law and your vigilantism to coincide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I I think it, it's it is over. He's chucked the plaque in the bin. He's walked out on Matt. At least for this moment in time, it'll be. Interesting to see what potentially brings them back uh, together. What horrific, bloody situation is going to um, finally allow Foggy to understand why Matt is doing this, and maybe even for Matt to understand that he can't simply carry this torch alone. I mean, to an extent, this almost seems a bit like a, a Bruce and Alfred Pennyworth type of thing. It is that Matt has not really had other than maybe Claire Temple occasionally but she has kind of not been in no. um, the the episodes that much really mm-hmm. um, over the last three and four um, episodes I mean there was reference made to her that she stitched up his wounds in this one but we've not seen her so she was fleeced. noticeable by her absence in this episode when when foggy specifically says she came over fixed you up and left yeah. and it seemed like well why didn't we see the conversation between the two of them but i presume it would have been just a very odd conversation because she wasn't going to say anything to him about anything very finding all, him so. in the, the dumpster she hadn't even told him that yeah so yeah. we kind of i was, thought wasn't she living with him still um no no after the whole, uh, yeah, I'm not going to fall in love. She's still there thing. That's well, I just assumed. In. I didn't know. She. I, I assumed it was like I'm. I'm not going to fall in love with you. But can I still stay here because the bad guys know where I live? Um, <laughs> I think she went back to take care of her friend's cat. I think. Oh her, yes, but the they found her there. I wonder whether then as well, Matt. Um, is able to use Foggy as his emotional crutch to share his secret identity with so that it isn't as much of a burden as it is at the moment, given that Claire Temple you know, seems to have removed herself from his life, yeah. you know? Yeah. So I've just got one note about this episode for me, just uh, Matt's first fight, where he essentially dresses in a, an even more iconic outfit for me, which was his uh, his original Daredevil outfit from... The Man Without Fear by Frank Miller, um, which is essentially just a bandana that covers just his eyes and he's wearing a hoodie. Uh, this is the first outfit that Daredevil ever dressed up in uh, in the comic book series that Frank, the Frank Miller wrote. Um, so I thought that was a great little little moment to actually see the scene where he takes out the uh, takes out the the abusive father um, wearing this outfit. That was really good. Yeah, and it was it was the striking running across the train, mm-hmm. the roof of the train, which that even reminded me of one of the pivotal kind of panels that you see a lot. If any if any of our listeners kind of Google 
that it's him running across a rooftop and again mm-hmm. that's where I thought it was just it was perfectly timed and perfectly kind of visualised yeah I, I loved the final wide shot of the railway bridge the railway sidings and him just stood over the knocked out body of this abusive um, father I also did like this story build up to that as well about the idea that as a kid he would hear the sirens and mm-hmm. make up stories about whether it's a fire engine or a cop car or an ambulance um, and that after the accident, he realised how many more sirens there were in Hell's Kitchen and in New York City and that something needed to be done. I thought that was kind of neat how, how they they introduced this kind of backstory as well. Yeah. So that was, that was great. So if nobody has any other notes, Irene, do you defend this episode of Daredevil? I mostly defend this episode of Daredevil. I think Foggy needs to cop on a bit in future episodes. Right. And hopefully... At least start to see Matt's side, yeah, and where he's coming from. But yes, most I do. I suppose I do defend this episode of Daredevil. <laughs> it was just very sad. It was uh, very down. Chris, do you defend this episode of Daredevil? <sighs> Interesting. I'm really, I'm really. Uh, yeah, it was some nice Easter eggs. Um, so there was some nice kind of quotes back. It was plot exposition. Mm-hmm. It was really just. If any episode has ever felt like a filler, this was kind of it. It was an error to move the story along with two points. Mm-hmm. In, well, well, three points. Foggy, yeah. the closure of the thing. Fisk and Vanessa. Yeah. And poor Vanessa, we don't know. And then the, just the the showing of what we discussed, how manipulative Karen can be. Mm-hmm. And it was... a. You could have really slotted those three scenes into one of the other episodes. Yeah. So, but I still enjoyed it. I, 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 I'm enjoying the show. It felt, it's the only one that felt like a bit of a labour. So I'm a bit on the edge. I'm going to say guilty until proven innocent. Right, right. John, do you defend this episode of Daredevil? I'm along the same lines as Irene and Chris here. I'm, I just defend it. Um, I was wondering what I would give this episode and I was thinking three and a half um, out of five but in the end I've gone with three tainted glasses of champagne out of, out of five I think there's elements in here that I really enjoyed particularly um, Foggy and Matt having their cathartic moments I thought was really good Absolutely. but I think that there were about three really just I thought dumb lines in here that maybe are a continuation of long-running gags or jokes, but they didn't seem to fit in this episode because it was quite sad, it was quite reminiscent, and it was quite melancholy. Mm. Um, And then the only other reason is I actually did like that, in a sense, they made Karen's character, for me at least, um, almost beyond the point where she can come back and redeem herself uh, for me, that she is destructive, that she's obsessive, and she is only caring about herself. But And I think the writers, if that's what they're going for, to for people, for the audience to not like the character, um, I think they're doing a really good job of that. But I did think that maybe it was a bit too on the nose for me. Um, because... I think she just looked cold and calculated, actually, by taking uh, Benerick out there to the the hospice 
where Fisk's mother is. That to me was maybe just too premeditated and, and, and slightly too much, even though the reveal was great and really interesting, and I think it explodes an awful lot. I just wish they had purred back a bit from that for me. Um, but there is a lot in this episode that I, I like. I've said the Foggy and Matt and again, Wilson Fisk, Madam Gow. I mean, they are really, really good. And I'm looking forward to see how and if Madam Gow is behind that poisoning. I mean, mm-hmm. that is a good little cliffhanger here um, to, to end up on. But for me, three tainted glasses of champagne out of five and Derek did you defend this episode uh, yeah very similar to you guys um, I wasn't as it's it's difficult for these kind of episodes to give a review or give an opinion about whether I defend the individual episode it's much easier for films where there's a start middle and end and a, and a total structure of the story for this episode it probably has some of my favorite scenes I think having having foggy versus uh, versus matt is a great thing to see it's always interesting stuff when you read it in the comics you know the reveal of uh, the secret identity of your superhero to his best friends is, is always something you know someone that didn't know that is always something interesting to to read and something interesting to watch and i like they allowed that to breathe in this episode definitely um gow and fisk is is a fascinating uh, time to watch two amazing actors on screen up against each other it's always great to spend time with them having them all in the same episode not so much uh, i will just say with regards to the karen element um i've been a kind of a defender of karen up to this point and i feel that this episode is really probably the reason why it needed to feel as cold and premeditated what she did by bringing or to the to the hospice why it needed to feel so cold and premeditated was because people like me are defending her um, it hasn't stood out to me in the past that the character is th- is this way. And now in this episode, it's absolutely standing out to me that she will do anything to get what she wants. And that's something I'd never thought of Karen before this episode. So uh, being a very revealing, revealing episode and having some great scenes in it, I do defend this episode as one of many. I certainly wouldn't recommend to sit down and watch this one and only this episode. Definitely. Our feedback for this episode is on our Age of Ultron podcast, uh, which we released last week. If you've now seen the film, um, you should you should have. Uh, if you've now seen the film, hopefully you've uh, listened to our Age of Ultron spoiler cast. Um, just a couple of points that came in from our from our listeners for those episodes. Uh, Irene, do you want to give us our first piece of feedback? Um, ben Rush sent us in. Um, he said, send me a bottle of Jamie and some Tato's and I'll go again. So that was really good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Ben had sent some feedback that he wasn't. He didn't really like Age of Ultron, and we asked him to give it another go. But uh, yeah, I think uh, I think two IMAX tickets is about the same price as two as a bottle of Jameson and uh, and a couple of packs of Tato, isn't it? Yeah. So uh, so maybe it's about the same price, to be honest. And uh, Rebecca Bradour also sent us some feedback. She says uh, Ant Man is actually the end of Phase Two, not the start of Phase Three. Really enjoying your podcast. Just wanted to point that out because uh, it's kind of the linchpin for some of the random speculation about about Ant Man as to whether it finishes off this phase of Marvel films or whether it starts the next phase. So thanks very much, Rebecca. We did have a whole discussion about it that we did have to edit down a little bit, um, and we did actually get to that point in the end, but it didn't make the final cut in the episode. So our apologies for the confusion on that one. It would have been in bad. It was just myself and Derek arguing for about 10 minutes straight, going, <laughs> no, you're right. No, you're wrong. No, you're right. No, you're, no wrong. you're right, Chris. Thank you. That's how we, that's how we argue. Um, John. Yeah, Rebecca also then sent in that uh, Banner knows about Veronica. I think uh, I had questioned, I'd kind of thought about whether Bruce Banner or the Hulk actually knew about um, the Hulk prison and the um, the Hulkbuster uh, Iron Man suit. 
and um, she's confirms here that Banner does know about Veronica, and when um, you watch it again, that he mentions that he helped, obviously, to build it and to, to create it. Um, and so um, I promise I'd keep my ears and eyes peeled for, for Banner's reference to Veronica when we catch the film again. I would think I did mention third time lucky. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's there all right. So, um, Rebecca, thank you for that spot. It's something I hadn't... Um, looked at uh, or seen at all and um she did however she was very nice to say that um there's no way i could have talked sensibly about age of ultron for two hours and not needed a lot more corrections and um, but corrections are all good uh, it means that we go and watch the movie again <laughs> absolutely and thanks for saying you think we talked talked sensibly for two hours it's very good of you <laughs> Uh, our final piece of uh, of Age of Ultron feedback comes in from Rose. Uh, thanks very much again, Rose. Um, she says, hi, guys. What's up? I did enjoy Age of Ultron, but was kind of expecting more. I had the same feeling that it was way too confusing and there were so many important things happening at the same time. I thought it was a shame that the gemstones were treated so superficially. So these are the uh, these are the power gems, essentially. Um this, it's such a big deal, but Thor talks about it so casually. Uh, however, it was good entertainment for Friday evening. I thought I saw the barrels with chemical waste we saw on Daredevil, but it was a false alarm. <laughs> uh, she says, your podcast is amazing as always, and I love to hear all the team assembled. Thanks very much, Rose. Really good really good Thank to hear you, from you. Um, yeah, I think we, we talked about the uh, gems in our Age of Ultron episode, and one of the elements that we thought was happening was that a lot of Thor's exposition was being cut out of the final film, um, that Joss Whedon, when he got into the final editing room, had edited some of these elements out. So the importance probably was lessened a little bit in this in this particular film. We'll see more of it in Ragnarok, and we'll definitely see more of it in Avengers Infinity War. Um, and director's cut. Yeah, and director's cut. And yes. actually on that, uh, it's been speculated this week that we will, in the Blu-ray, get the Avengers Age of Ultron extended, mm-hmm. which is the director's cut, Mr. Mm-hmm. Whedon's cut, which is over three hours. Very interesting. Amazing. And additionally, we will get extra final scene or final credit scenes excellent so this is one I'm going to be very hopeful for because Josh has come out and said that he felt sometimes that he had to cut huge amounts out and that there was just too much going on Mm -hmm. I actually think he's doing himself a disservice Mm. I think Josh has a way of tying these and I personally would have sat down and watched the three hour version so I think most people who enjoyed the film will go back and watch this extended version definitely um just on the gems um there was a reason apparently it started being coming out in one josh has come out and said that he specifically did this and only teased elements of it Mm -hmm. for a specific reason in that we will find out more in thor ragnarok um that he did not want to give too much to the um, the gems and the infinity gauntlet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, totally understand that. Uh, Joss Whedon, the uh, the Peter Jackson of the Marvel universe, basically with his uh, extended cuts coming out very soon. Uh, one final piece on Joss as we're as we're in our feedback section. Uh, okay, he didn't say it was for feedback for our podcast specifically, but he was being interviewed about. Irene's question was asked to uh, to Joss Whedon as to where was Loki, um, and he did give a response that Loki uh, a scene was filmed with Tom Hiddleston, but was cut from the final mm-hmm. edit of the film. So, uh, so Irene, you were Loki. right to speculate as to why George Loki is- wasn't in the film. The scene was filmed and was cut from the final final uh, version of the film. So maybe we'll see that on Blu-ray in the end. So 
Good question, Irene. <laughs> thanks very much for that, Joss. So thanks very much for listening. Please send us your feedback on this episode or any other episode or on the Avengers Age of Ultron to feedback at DefendersTVPodcast.com. Yeah, remember you can always listen to um, any of our podcasts at DefendersTVPodcast.com forward slash iTunes or search Defenders TV Podcast on any other good podcast catcher such as Stitcher or Player FM. Don't forget to give us a review. Comments as well can come through Twitter at DefendersCast or on our Facebook page or group. Just search Defenders TV Podcast. So as always, thanks very much for listening. Thanks for listening, everybody. Defenders assemble next time. Yeah, thank you so much for listening. Bye. 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 We don't get a chance to talk. You take care of yourself.